You're listening to Cultivation Elevated, hosted by Michael Williamson, where we discuss vertical farming and the future of cannabis and food production. You'll be learning key insights for vertical farming success from leading industry operators, growers, and executives. If you're a grower or owner looking to optimize your existing or new indoor cultivation facility, or anyone looking to cultivate more in less space, we've got you covered. Cultivation Elevated, sponsored by Pip Particulture. Hello and welcome to another episode of Cultivation Elevated, sponsored by Pip Horticulture. I'm here in Austin, Texas with Mitch Galton, Director of Business Development for Urban Grow. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, buddy. Thanks for seeing you again. Yeah, nice to see you in Austin. Yeah, yeah it's been a while. <laughs> we've, uh, we, we've had some fun uh, fun road adventures over the years. Yeah, no, it's been an, been an exciting, uh, exciting journey. So for our listeners who aren't familiar with Urban Grow, can you kind of give a just general oversight of Urban Grow and solutions and stuff that you guys offer? Yeah, definitely. And, and it's changed a lot over the last couple of years. You know, two years ago, we uplisted a NASDAQ, did a pretty big capital raise. And as part of that, we've made quite a few acquisitions and really started kind of embracing a, a turnkey model where we can take customers start to finish, you know, from all the way through architecture, uh, MEP, all the engineering services, equipment procurement, and then most recently, uh, construction management and, and GC in a lot of cases. So really kind of soup to nuts. Um, you know, the idea is that we can help customers, you know, one-stop shop, do everything and get to market really quick. Yeah. Uh, that might be one of the biggest restrictors that we see with people. They tend to get delayed for a million different reasons or excuses. And there's a huge financial ramification for not getting to market fast enough. Especially in these new states, you know, a lot of these groups pay such a premium to get restricted licenses. Um, and, you know, with the idea that prices are going to be really high for the first couple groups to come online. And so every, you know, couple months that you're kind of delayed in permitting or because there was an issue with architecture or MEP, whatever it was, that can cost you huge amounts on, on what you paid for that license. What are some of the biggest delays that you've seen in, on projects typically? Like, what are the what are the common trends that we've seen over the last I don't know ten years? I, it's a good question, and you know, part of what makes this industry so challenging is that there are a million delays coming coming from all directions. You know, construction is a big one, um, permitting is a big one. Sometimes you just run into cities that don't want cannabis cultivation in their district or in their city, and and they make it really challenging on everything from fire inspection to you know, safety planning, everything can kind of get in the way. A lot of the time, and the things that we try to mitigate, it's collaboration between architects, engineering, you know, just a week gets delayed because there's not communication or communication slow, but having all that in-house allows us to kind of speed up that process and, and allow for better communication between groups that are building these projects. Nice. I want to dig more into Urban Grow because there's a lot of interesting stuff there. But before I do, I want to dig a little bit into your backstory because you have a really in my mind, fascinating entry into the cannabis space. Can you elaborate a little bit about kind of where you were and, and what time period that was and kind of w what transpired? Yeah, yeah, and I'll, I'll keep it brief. We can always edit it uh, edit it down if it gets too long. But, um, you know, so I, I was in college and I'd, I'd worked for a general LED company. Um, you know, we did like restaurant lighting and all that. And one of the projects I had assigned to me while I was there was looking into the viability of, of LEDs for horticulture. And where were you at school at this time? Where, where, where? UC Santa Barbara. Um, so I was in my, my second year during that, um, about to enter my third year. And um, after doing that research, you know, my, my kind of conclusion from it was that LEDs aren't really there yet for horticulture. This was back in 2015, 16, but it was pretty close. Uh, HPS were still really predominant. Double-ended had come to the scene pretty recently. 
and they were really efficient. They were growing, you know, they were really good for plant growth. But LEDs were advancing really quickly, and it was clear to me that eventually they would kind of surpass HPS, and, and there would be a big shift in the horticulture space. Um, and what, what, sorry, what year was this as well? 20, like kind of the end of 2015, beginning of 2016. Yep. And so, I, you know, I was just kind of keeping an eye on the handful of LED horticulture lighting companies out there, and uh, one that was really interesting to me was BML. Um, but their price point was a little bit high, and the product, you know, wasn't quite there to beat HPS at the time. But I think in fall of 2016, they rebranded to Fluence and came out with a product that was, you know, night and day better than, I would say, all the LEDs available at the time. But also, you know, I thought it was the first product that was really going to be able to compete with HPS um, and, and surpass it. So I actually, I just reached out to the company. I, I sent them an email. And uh, Jerry, who you know pretty well, one of their owners, reached out to me. And we talked for, I think, two hours in my, uh, I was in my third year of college. Um, and, and at one point he said, he's like, look, you know, we'll probably have a job for you when you graduate, but if, you, if you're if you interested and you want to take a break from school, I'll teach you more in the next year than you'll ever learn in college. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and to his credit, he, he really did. It was, you yeah. know, it was a pretty crazy experience, but, it, you know, it was a tough decision, but I ended up leaving after my third year. I took a leave of absence and um, moved out to Texas. I, there were only 15 people in the company at the time. How did mom and dad feel about that? <laughs> you know, they, they were a little bit surprised, um, probably not thrilled, but I think they, they appreciated that I was you know, that I could always go back to college and that, sure. you know, the timing was pretty unique. The horticulture, the indoor vertical farming space was blown up. And then also cannabis was, was getting really big in a lot of states. I mean, how many billionaires left, uh, you know, Harvard <laughs> and Yale to go get busy with what their ideas were? Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, I could always go back. You know, I think that was part of what uh, made me feel comfortable is, you know, I could, if it didn't work out, I could just go back and it would be a good experience. But um, no, it ended up being incredible. We grew tremendously both in, in staff and then also revenue over the next three, four, five years. What number employee or how many people are on the team at this point? When I joined in 2016, I think it was about 15 people. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we had a lot of uh, manufacturing also. So it's, you know, people in different roles, but about 15 total, I think. Um, And by the time I left in 2020, we were around 200. Yeah. So, you know, pretty hyper growth through those years. And, you know, a lot of, uh, it was interesting to watch that journey, both from the, you know, customer standpoint, working with a lot of groups that really expanded. And then also, you know, just the internal, you know, going from a really small startup to a much bigger still startup was, it was an interesting journey, but a lot of fun and, and a tremendous learning experience. Do you feel like now that you've gotten the startup bug or like you got to experience a startup? Because a lot of people don't. Yeah. They live their whole lives. They work for very stable companies. They have a very clear sense of what their role and responsibility is and kind of day-to-day stuff. And then there's people that have been a part of a startup and it's, if you're lucky, it's controlled chaos, um, you know? Um, and so, but it's not for everybody, you know, people that thrive on structure sometimes really struggle to have light feet during startup mode. And, you know, year one, so exciting. Yeah. Year two is like crazy and still good, but like it's, it's starting, but like year three is like one of the hardest years I find in, in a typical startup. It's when like you're either doing it or you're not. Totally. And, and we were really lucky. I mean, it was, it was such a unique startup in the sense that uh, the ownership team never took on outside investment, so it was really all kind of held internally, and, and we had a lot of freedom over product design, you know, our approach to the market, and I think that helped a lot. But it was definitely, it was an interesting experience being in such a small startup and having to scale quickly. And then, you know, we were acquired in 2018 by Osram, which is a $4 billion company, and so I kind of got to see both sides of the, you know, hyper-small startup to the and hyper-growth startup to the, you know, institutional been around a hundred year company and and you know there are pros and cons to both it's definitely a more 
exciting environment when um, when you're in a startup scene, but it's uh, it's also a lot more stressful. You know, it really comes down. There's no backstop. You know, it's uh, you know the decisions you make can can affect whether you're around for the you know in the next year or the next month even. Um, whereas you know having that backstop of a four billion dollar company who can you know, kind of bail you out or, or look longer term and make make investments, mm-hmm. you know, that has some benefits also. Can we talk a little bit about this concept of like getting to market early? You know, while you were at Fluence, um, your territories were mostly North America or Canada specifically? Yeah, mostly North America. I did a lot in Canada just because there was so much growth up there at the time. Um, and all those guys were really chasing speed to market in a huge way. Yeah. That's about, I think, the time that you and I connected, and we started hitting the road together. Um, and I was, you know, looking at trying to see, are, what are people doing in Canada? Yeah. Is anybody going multi-tiered or vertical? What I learned was people were building some monstrous greenhouses. Yeah. Um, and so I have my, you know, theories on where Canada kind of um, hurt themselves. Um, but, like, you know, from your perspective and what we experienced, that, I mean, I don't even know if that's hyper-growth. It was like... It's like megalodon growth. I mean, it was just, uh, I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen so much capital deployed. I've yeah. never seen, that was my first time seeing a million plus square feet of cannabis greenhouse. Yeah. And it'd be next to like three million square feet of peppers. And, you know, I mean, it was just like the whole thing was just like, I was like, wow, I've really been doing this at a very craft level in comparison to this. Well, and what was interesting about Canada is it, it did start out pretty small, and so a lot of these guys went from you know two thousand square feet to to a million square feet overnight, and I think you know that that alone presents a lot of challenges. Even if you can do something super well at two thousand square feet, just finding the staff in a lot of the places where these guys were building to manage a million square feet of cannabis was really challenging. Uh, yeah, Canada's been an interesting market for sure. I mean, ultimately, Canada's you know foot, uh, shot in the foot was not having canopy restrictions, you know, and then that tied into basing evaluations based on what you could produce, but not what you could sell. And that is such a terrifying, I don't know, situation to be in. And I I look at it and I'm like, and then you restricted retail outlets as well. Yeah. So you choke the businesses, but you allow them to overproduce. I mean, it's crazy that that was like somehow okay. And like, nobody was like, this is going to implode early on, you know? Yeah, and, and it goes to show that you know this, the way that states or, or jurisdictions roll out uh, cultivation licenses, uh, you know, we see it vary hugely based on you know based on where groups are, but it does make a difference in in how viable these these companies are long term, right? Like you know, restricted licensing is great because it g- gives you a license to print money if you get one of the first ones. But the question is, what happens after that? You know, if you have unlimited square feet, like we saw in Canada. You know that really valuable license is great because you can build unlimited, but it also means that your competitors can build unlimited also. And so, the value of that license is is always going to go down as people expand and the state continues or mm-hmm. the the jurisdiction continues to issue new licenses, which is another issue Canada had. They, you know, they they issued the first batch of standard licenses, and then just kept issuing them. I think there are you know a couple hundred up there now, especially once you once you factor in the craft licenses. For a while, it was only twenty or thirty licenses, and it allowed those guys to raise, like you were saying, tremendous amounts of money and just dump it into into more square footage. Mm-hmm. You were also on the horticulture side or the non cannabis side you, as well. Were you selling into that market at the time? Yeah, we were doing a little bit of it. You know, cannabis was always bigger, um, of course. But, but we were definitely doing a lot of the indoor vertical farming, and then a lot of the a lot of the greenhouse groups also. And, and in 
a, a lot of the cases we connected with those guys because they were converting a portion of their tomato greenhouse or their cucumber greenhouse to cannabis um, and then they started looking at lighting for or supplemental lighting for their other crops obviously at much lower amounts the the roi is much lower from increased yield but you know it kind of got their foot in the door and, and got the commercial ag guys a little bit more used to higher tech equipment what are you excited for over at Urban Grow? Like, what 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 are some of the, like the projects or uh, maybe new solutions or developments that you guys have in, in the pipeline that you were like, you know, th- this is an exciting um, opportunity for for cannabis? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, now that we're we have kind of a, a full suite of services and we're able to do turnkey, we're really trying to kind of integrate everyone a lot more, and it's it's been fantastic because you know one thing we were talking about earlier is if you have individual groups it can be really challenging for the architects to communicate with the MEP and and for that information to go quickly and now that you know everyone's kind of familiar with each other we're integrating really well you know everyone knows who to reach out to about certain things projects just run much more smoothly and so you know we've been doing a lot of retrofits um, and our equipment team is is really talking a lot with our um, our MEP division and that's been huge. You know, a lot of guys are retrofitting lighting. They're adding a second tier, and that really changes the the humidity that you have to manage in the space, the the temperature, the sensible load that you have to manage in the space, and being able to just call up, you know, one of our engineers and, and talk to him about the HVAC, how that affects the current HVAC system, what equipment they can kind of add in to mitigate the changes or the impact. It's been really fantastic. Um, and one of the things we always struggled with at Fluence was helping customers understand when they change lights, what else changes in their system? And just being able to call someone else on our team that really knows that stuff inside and out has been huge. So you guys do, in addition to mechanical, electrical, and plumbing, or MEP engineering, mm-hmm. you do structural and civil? Yeah, structural. Environmental? Structural, civil, you know, environmental hasn't come up as much, mm-hmm. um, but we can, yeah, we can we can manage all that. Yeah, it's usually like a poor site selection. Site selection is a huge piece of what we're doing on the architecture side. Um, you know, a lot of groups are deciding between going into an existing space and kind of fitting it out, gutting it, or building ground up. And, and there's a lot more, uh, you know, again, coming from the lighting side, I, I didn't realize how much went into the site selection and how much, you know, a couple things being overlooked can really impact you down the road. Like utilities available? Utility. Yeah. That's, that seems to be an Achilles heel for a lot of people. They are like, I got this great property. Oh, yeah, it's got a bunch of power. Oh, look at all these power. You know, it's like, yeah. no, 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 you don't have the right kind of power. Your real power is three miles down the road. This place like California, I mean, one time when we were at Harborside um, Farms in Salinas, I think we waited over two years for a power upgrade. Yeah. I mean, do you know what that does with financial performa? I mean, it's 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 brutal, and you look at the lost revenue opportunity, and it is it is very difficult. It's brutal, and and once you're already in that far, if you've selected the wrong site and you've done you know structural changes to it, started the retrofit, uh, you know it's too late to turn back in a lot of cases. Yeah, or maybe it's the only approved space in the local municipality. I mean, totally, or your license is tied to that space and you can't move. All sorts of stuff. So you know that that is a big piece of what we've been doing with a lot of the you know the east coast states where they are starting to kind of launch programs and issue licenses a lot of what we're doing with new applicants or or you know new licensees is just helping them kind of understand what they're in for when they uh when they're looking at a site and and like you said we've had people that are convinced they found the right site and then we kind of help them understand all the things that they weren't looking at you know understand the full picture and and start looking at things that they weren't considering what what are some of those things you know, like you said, access to power is a huge one. Utility rate. Utility rate. You know, sometimes, uh, you know, just 
structural when they start looking at what they the rooms they actually need to put in there that kind of thing it's you know you need to start breaking down walls to make efficient canopy layouts and then you know this was a supporting wall so you know there's all sorts of stuff um hazard hazardous materials in a lot of cases um you know what the water on the site looks like that kind of thing mm-hmm so for people who aren't familiar with retrofits, you said you're seeing a big increase in retrofits, which to me makes total sense. It's, it's I assume, part of surviving consolidated markets and leaning up from an energy footprint and carbon footprint standpoint to some extent. Yeah, and when I say retrofit, I should clarify, there's kind of two types. One is if you're building a new kind of ground up project, you can take an existing just empty warehouse and grocery you know, store, warehouse. Totally, and just you know retrofit it from a building standpoint. But what we're seeing a lot more of is groups that are already managing canopy you know they have a uh, facility that they either built you know maybe even only three four or five years ago that's kind of outdated or they made an acquisition probably paid too much in a lot of cases and now they're trying to kind of go back and and make it profitable yeah we're seeing a lot of traction on both of those Uh, you know it's a lot harder than it sounds I, i think that's one one of my big takeaways after doing a lot of these projects there's always you know little things that you're not considering and again that's where you know, having an installation team that we work with, having the MEP guys that we can contact and kind of understand minor changes or changes that seem minor, how that impacts everything else. That's been really valuable because, you know, switching lights is great. Upgrading lighting or upgrading benching is great. But if you if your HVAC can't handle it or your you, your DHU can't handle it, it's, it's uh, environment's almost always going to be more important than anything else. It's interesting in the vertical farming space, People will say like, "Oh, vertical farming doesn't work," or they they, they want to blame something or yeah. someone or both in some cases. Um, but they'll be like, "Oh yeah, they, you know." And I always think like, "Well, it's not the racking's fault. It's not the lighting's <laughs> fault. Like this is almost ninety percent of the time it's poor mechanical design, totally, and it's operator error, totally. Um, and so it's easy to look at something, some new technology that you know being developed. It's being refined. I mean, look at the amount of innovation that we've had in cannabis specific cultivation i mean it's it there, there's been leaps and bounds oh huge but yeah it's, it's interesting when people want to place blame on the equipment that they're poorly using in their poorly designed space with um yeah you know just the wrong mechanical system totally and that's another uh, you know coming from a, a company that was so equipment focused on just one piece of equipment it's really made me broaden my horizons in terms of of understanding as important as lighting is there's so much more out there and i think you know, every vendor in the space can kind of take that lesson. The HVAC guys can need to focus a little bit more outside of HVAC. It, you know, understanding how your system fits in with the rest of the equipment is is really what matters because you can have the best light, you can have the best rack, but if the grower doesn't have the system or, or the understanding of how that affects the rest of their system to really utilize it, they're always going to blame the equipment and, and they're not going to get the results, which is at the end of the day what, you know, as as equipment vendors, what we should always be uh be looking at yeah and at urban grow you know you you know that you're buying stuff that's already the integration is there um it's already you know you're not selling something that's like oh yeah we're not exactly sure how this marries with this it's like no no this is like a best practice these are industry leading um companies that we you know we sell products for totally and we do you know on that note we do a ton of vendor vetting that's that's another piece that i've i really you know tried to stress over the over the couple years that i've been with the company is that there's a lot of noise out there um, from equipment vendors in the space, um, and especially as as more equipment categories get kind of commoditized, there's tons of new players from overseas coming in with you know really low cost products and making sure they're doing what they say they're going to do 
it helps customers understand what they're actually buying, what they should actually be paying. But it also, you know, if, if a lighting company is saying that their fixture is running at 600 watts, but it's actually running at 640, 650, that has a big impact on the HVAC. And so, you know, by doing this vend- uh, vendor vetting, we're not just saying, hey, here are the vendors you should and shouldn't go with. We're saying, look, you know, if you want to go with this vendor, that's totally fine, but understand what it's really doing in your system and how it impacts the rest. You know, we try to be really equipment agnostic and not, you know, give recommendations. We just try to give data. Um, and that's something that, you know, again, a lot of the vendors are, are not super transparent about. So, you know, doing that third-party vendor vetting is really valuable for us. It's, it's everything, you know, and I, I find that typically from my experience um, on projects, a lot of times the new owners, they just, they're not, they don't speak the language. They don't speak MEP they just it's a it's a lot if you if you're not coming from that background it's almost like a foreign language and then equipment selection and integration i think a really challenging thing for people as owners who aren't in the space yet are just getting there is like looking at apples to apples when you're looking at equipment you know comps i mean they just look at the price like oh this one's the cheapest and it's like no 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 that one is definitely not the cheapest in the end totally totally no it's it's a tough one i mean i'm you know i consider myself pretty pretty well versed in a lot of this equipment and sometimes I'll be looking at two two lighting quotes, two benching quotes and, and even as someone who's really familiar with what, what I'm looking at, it can be hard to do an apples to apples comparison and really drill down into, you know, what each vendor's pro- proposing, you know, what they're actually providing, that kind of thing. So no, it's a it's it's a really good point and, and you know, another piece is even if you have two vendors that are offering exactly the same thing, making sure that you're buying from a vendor who's going to be around to honor the warranty um, for the full lifespan of the product is, is massive. You know, over the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of vendors, especially smaller kind of fly-by-night vendors, go out of business. And even if they had great products, if you're not able to get a warranty when it when it fails or when there's an issue, that's a major, major downside. Yeah, it's it's interesting that one phone call to make it. Yeah. If you have an issue and it's associated with your equipment, like I'm calling whomever it is at Urban Grow um, versus one of the challenges I had when I was in operations in the earlier days, and I spent real money on HVAC. I remember we did like a big Stoltz install for for Kind Love, and when we were commissioning and doing all that stuff, like you know, there was a lot of finger pointing between like <laughs> MEP, HVAC company, and then certified yep. HVAC installer, and they would kind of like do this thing, and I was like, I don't have time for this. Like, and I'd make people fly in, everybody get in the room, and like we're just gonna sit in this room until we work this out. Yeah. No, the, we actually use the term one throat to choke all the time because it is, a, I think, a huge piece on the equipment selection side of our, of our value add is that, you know, if a vendor goes out of business, all, all of the vendors that we work with, you know, we have kind of contingency plans to make sure that we can honor the warranty, even if the, even if the company doesn't, uh, you know, adhere to it as, as well as we'd like or as well as the customer has expectations. So, you know, we're making sure that, uh, you know, again, it's, it's not only speed to market, but it's once you're operational, speed to continue staying in, in market and in production is huge. If your HVAC goes out and you have a room sitting there for two weeks, it doesn't matter if it's the installer's fault. It doesn't matter if it's the manufacturer's fault. You just need to get HVAC up and running and, and being able to just make one phone call, and, you know, be able to, for the grower, move on with your day-to-day and, and just be sure that it's getting addressed is huge. Yeah, absolutely. It just saves time. Yeah. Coming back to um, the the retrofits that you're seeing from you're seeing a good amount from HPS to LED. Yeah, a lot from HPS to LED, and and it kind of goes back to what you were saying on how quickly technologies advance in the industry. You know, grows that were built four five years ago. You know, in most industries, four or five years isn't that long. But I think the way a high tech facility is being designed today versus five years ago, just from the increase in technology, increase in you know how many new technologies have really been kind of validated and, and people have figured out how to really make them make them profitable and make them viable it's totally different than how you'd build to grow in 2016 17 18 
Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what it looks like five years from now. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Hopefully there's still human employees involved. <laughs> Not just AI. Yeah. Uh, of those retrofits uh, from HPS to LED, I'm going to ask this question because I, I think I know the answer, but I'm just curious. Um, are you seeing any anybody converting from LED back to HPS? No. You know, HPS, even on new construction, HPS is really rare these days. And I, and I think that's just because LEDs have gotten, you know, it's like an iPhone I, you know, I have an iPhone 14 or whatever. It, you know, my first iPhone, it seemed great when I had it. But if I went back to it, it would be, it would be, you know, night and day difference. And and I think people, you know, that technology curve has kind of happened with LEDs also to the point where they're cheap enough and the performance is high enough that it just doesn't really make sense to go HPS. Um, you know, plants don't really care where they're getting the photons from, whether it's an HPS, the sun, LEDs, as long as the spectrum's broad enough and you're getting the right amount of photons, that's almost always gonna be much more important than the type of light that you're using. And so as long as the, the performance is there and, and the price is low enough, which we've seen LED prices come down tremendously over the last couple of years, it just makes it really hard to choose HPS. It's interesting to hear like, oh, the prices have come down so much over the last few years, while like in other areas, the prices have skyrocketed so much. <laughs> Of those retrofits to LED, how many of those are single tier still versus multi tier? If you had to kind of put a rough percentage on it, you know, it's, that's another really good question. I, I would say fifty percent plus are are deciding to go multi tier when they make that switch. Um, it, you know, it depends how capex constraint they are. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of these groups are are switching to LEDs because they they're just trying to stay viable and and financially s- stable. Uh, and then in a lot of cases, they're good, really good rebates for LEDs that allow them to do it pretty ineffectively or pretty uh, inexpensively. And so, you know, those guys don't really have as much, uh, you know, they don't have as much cash to go multi-tier, double up the lights, that kind of thing. But for a lot of these guys, as they're doing the retrofit, they're looking at how to kind of optimize, how to how to improve, you know, both yield and just efficiency. And, you know, back to what we were talking about on, on how certain systems affect others in the space, when you make a change from HPS to LED, it has a pretty big impact on HVAC, and, and the exact impact really depends on how their system's sized, what type of uh, HVAC system they're using, that kind of thing. But most in most cases, your wattage is going to drop pretty significantly. Even if you increase intensity, you're still probably going to see a pretty big drop in wattage mm-hmm. when you when you change over from HPS to LED. But the humidity stays the same, and it might even go up. And so, a lot of the time, what we're seeing is is groups going multi-tier going with kind of the same intensity that they had but just doing it on two levels with led and so they're able to you know in a lot of cases get away with the same or, or it's is, more it's a more right if you go from thousand watts to like two six hundred something watt you know you're in that you play in that 12 1300 watts yeah exactly and, and so you can you know again depending on how the hvac is set up sometimes it's almost easier to make those hvac changes when you just add two tiers then if you just kind of change the wattage in there, you know, you're able to kind of adhere to the original wattage a little bit more, which makes makes the HVAC a little easier to manage. So we're seeing a lot of groups do it. And also, you know, if you're in a cultivation room, it's such a hassle to take it down and retrofit that you might as well do it all at once, go multi-tier, add a ton more canopy and, and take it away from there. So, you know, 50% plus, and, and it just comes down to where we're seeing groups doing it and, and how how much capital they have. I think more groups would be doing it if, if they had the capital. But I mean, still, I mean, it, you know, fifty percent's significant. 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 Yeah. Um, also, the, the the reason I ask is because I, I ask this comment with people that are kind of you know savvy in the lighting space or, or working on lots of various projects around the country or globe. Not seeing very many. Pe- I've got one that went from LED back to HBS. Really yeah. interesting. Yeah. What was what was the reasoning uh, there? 
I believe it was there were certain cultivars that they said were just they were they liked the trade expression more. It was more desirable with whatever that meant to them. Yeah. And I, I want to say there was something to do with like living organic soil or you know something. It was it was just yeah. It was going to be a single tier. That's maybe what it was. Yeah. A single tier because they had living organic soil beds and they had certain cultivars that um, perform better under HPS in their eyes. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, HPS, a lot of these genetics were bred under HPS. And so I, part of me wonders, is it is it the, the temperature under HPS that they're more used to? Is it, yeah, I think a big part of it might be temperature. Is it like photon penetration? You know, most of the time, if you're getting, a green light is really what causes canopy penetration. And so if you're getting a good green content, which most of the kind of broad spectrum LEDs have, and you're getting the right intensity, you should get the same canopy penetration. But you know, one one of the challenges when you switch over to LEDs, and again, depending on how it impacts your your system, your HVAC, knowing those changes and the changes you need to make from an operational standpoint is, is really valuable. You know, a lot of times groups will will put in 30% more light, you know, 20% redu- reduction in wattage. Their HVAC changes exact, you know, totally how it's being run, and then also their light their plants are getting way more light than they're used to. Um, and so we we really work with customers to make sure that when they switch to LED, and especially when they switch to higher intensity with with any light source. That they're kind of ready for the changes that it's that it's going to make. Usually, a little bit higher watering rate, but the big one is that you want to photo acclimate. You want to make sure that you, when you put your plants in from veg, you start at lower intensity and kind of ramp it up slowly. Because, you know, if they were getting 700 ppfd with their HPS when they first flipped into flower, um, and then you start, you know, moving them from veg into 900, 1,000, 1,200 ppfd, you can get some pretty big issues that you're not used to seeing under HPS just because of the lower light intensity. We talk a lot um, at Catalyst and PIP about compounding stress yeah, um, and compounding stress events. And for whatever reason, there's something around the time where people like to transplant or move. So you're like, you're physically moving the plant from yeah. one environment to another. They're not always conditioned ideally. Like you might go have a lot of humidity in your bedroom totally. or, or an optimal amount of humidity in your bedroom. And then you go into a larger space where you don't have as much biomass and it's drier. Um, they'll, they'll prune the bottom of their plants. They'll top their plants. They might do an uh, IPM foliar spray. Uh, the lighting might be different. The yep. nutrient changes. And it's like, it's a lot of change at one time to put on a plant. Like, and then, you know, the, I hear comments from growers like, oh, yeah, it bounces back. or And I'm like, like you just lost a week. It sets you back so much. You just lost a week. Totally. And people don't realize in, in, in horticulture, farming, cannabis, like seconds matter, days matter, weeks matter. They add up to like seconds matter in labor, days matter in production and turns. Totally. Weeks. I mean, weeks is big bucks when you're losing a week. It's huge. And the, the amount of risk, you know. Plants do bounce back. It's a weed. It, you know, it's always going to grow. But I think the impact of that stress long term definitely shows up in the final product, and, and like you said, how long it takes to actually finish. Um, and having a plant in a flower room for an extra week, all the stuff you said about you know, fewer cycles a year, less revenue. But the risk of having that plant just sitting there, you know, it could get diseases. You, anything could happen in that last week. And so keeping plants in alive as short as possible to the point where you need to get a harvest is, is huge. And, and, you know, again, I think that is one of the big benefits of LED is that you can kind of acclimate and kind of mitigate that transplant shock that I think a lot of HPS growers are just used to dealing with. I, w- I was just remembering as you're talking, I was like, that's right, Mitch is like my go-to like um, quick LED, like, you know, over the years, I'm like, hey, Mitch, what do you think of this? Or what's this? Or tell me, like, break this down for me. And you're like, your photon, you know, genius <laughs> stuff. And, um, 
what would you say is like the diminishing returns on penetration into the canopy from LED in like a multi-tiered setting? Like, at, like how much of a bush or hedge are you actually really aiming for? Because it's interesting to see people's strategies around how tall of a plant they grow, how much are they yeah. skirting? Um, you know, like the big yielders in HPS, they're growing six, seven foot plus plants. You know, you're not doing that in a multi-tier. You know, and I think part of that change is is it it's what people are growing for. You know, back when you were getting 3,000, 4,000 a pound and, you know, your class B bud was getting 2,000 a pound, you might as well just keep that stuff on there. You know, but as price is compressed, it's become a lot harder not only to sell your product at the price you want, but actually just move your product at all. People are saying, why get the lower buds or the, you know, the class B, class C, when I could really just focus it on the top, I might not as get, might, might not get as much total yield, but it's easier to package because I'm c- packaging the same kind of consistent product. The stores are going to keep buying from me because they know it's the same coming, you know, the same yeah, product coming out. A's, A's and B pluses or however you want to grade that. And the spread in a lot of states, especially mature markets between A and, and B, C has plummeted. Um, you know, a lot of guys aren't even able to move B and C and, and you know, I've had guys that are throwing away trim. Um, just because it's not, you know, with all the processing effort and the labeling, packaging, it's just not worth it. Um, so I think that's that's part of what's driven that. Yeah, and I think that's that's really what determines how much you want to leave. You know, how how much space do you need for that cultivar to produce just top A or just kind of class A cultivar or class A flower? Yeah, and so I think you know, two feet, three feet is what I normally see. Um, and then and then I think also it comes down to airflow. You know, if you're really worried about airflow under your plants, you're going to skirt a little bit more, but you know, there's also the labor piece to look at because, you know, anytime I look at a balance sheet on a grow, labor's always higher than I expect. It's kind of mind blowing in some of these grows how much they're spending on just plant pruning. Um, and it's a bummer because you're spending money to grow that biomass and then you're spending money to pay someone to walk in there and chop out that biomass and bag it up, go, you know, run it through destruction. And, and you know, so it's kind of a fine balance and it all comes down to the local market how much your buyers prioritize and, and pay premium for class A versus B versus C and you know how quick your labor can do stuff like skirting in, in a pretty big way. What you just said just like <laughs> I, I'm going to I'll have him uh, you know cut it and play it again so people have to hear it twice but like what you were describing of like you know um, taking the time and energy to essentially overveg a plant just to then have to remove leaves and skirt more of it. Yeah. It's like if you know you're targeting a let's call it that 24 to 36 inch hedge totally it doesn't need to be up here it can be down here and allowing proper totally. airflow below and above for your systems to 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 be effective um i look at that as like from a lean hat like uh, value adding touches versus devaluating touches and that is a devaluating touch for the reasons that you highlighted the labor component huge well and then you know like i was saying with the, the risk of just having a plant be alive you know anything can happen to it uh, your hvac can shut off someone can knock it over that can you know pathogens are out there pests veg i think that's even more crucial is limiting the amount of time in veg and so like you said rather than growing a plant four weeks in veg and then skirting the bottom half that you just spent all that time growing you know, I, I like seeing people do shorter veggies. Um, mitigates risk. You get a lot more turns. You can have one square foot of veg fill up a lot more flower room if you're doing a shorter veg cycle. Uh, you know, and if you're only trying to grow two or three feet, why have it be up here and grow a five foot plant when you could just you know start it out that way uh, yeah. and move it in earlier? It's interesting on the multi-tier stuff. It's like the veg timing of those cultivars due to stretch. Yeah, is so critical. Like knowing what you have. Totally. We've been working on solutions and kind of tips and tricks that we're going to put out in an, in an upcoming webinar. But 
you know, helping those first time growers in new facilities with new genetics, with yeah. new equipment, with new team, like the amount of newness, it's like the all, everything all at once kind of entourage. And, you know, for even for a seasoned um, veteran cultivator that's been doing it for a while, it's a lot. It's really overwhelming. And it's, there's so much integration and just bugs to work out while you're supposed to be growing your healthiest, best crop that is what you're launching your brand with simultaneously. You know what I mean? Like totally. The pressure is really high on harvest. I mean, it feels like every harvest, but specifically that first harvest in a new facility. It's huge. When we were talking about Canada, you know, some of the challenges they ran into, I, I would actually say that on top of all the over-licensing, over, you know, square footage per, per minute things that they allowed, one of the biggest issues that the Canadian market faced was the lack of bringing in new cultivars. You know, the, the first couple licenses were able to bring in whatever they wanted, but they didn't really take advantage of that in a lot of cases. But it ha- I believe it ha- didn't have to come from phytosanitary certificates, so it had to come out of either, what, Spain... Holland, right? Yes, there's a had, lot of Dutch genetics early on. You had it, and it had something to do. I'm probably going to butcher it, but they had something to do with the federal aspect. They couldn't bring stuff in from the U.S. because it wasn't federally registered or whatever. And so, you know, I think that that was a big part of it. And and the first guys did have just kind of a carte blanche; they could bring in whatever they wanted. But after the first, I think seven licenses, they really cracked down on it. And and a lot of the American genetics that you know, were really popular, um, they couldn't make it up there. And so, you know, we walked through some beautiful facilities that were actually really well set up and I think really well run, but... And then you saw some shishkaberry? <laughs> and you saw some shishkaberry that was, was in... That, was that the name yeah, of it? Yeah, yeah, there were like, you know, I think we, we went on a tour of Canada once and saw 10 grows running the same shishkaberry and, and you know, these some of these cultivators were just beating their heads against a wall with a perfect system, a perfect, you know, SOP, and they just couldn't get... The cultivars that they had, the three or four cultivars that they paid, you know, 10, 20, 30 grand for in a lot of cases. Yeah, they paid big money for it. Yeah, just to get a clone that, you know. <laughs> that all their competition has. That all their competition has, and that just wasn't going to work super well in their system. And so, you know, I think genetic selection, especially when you're looking at kind of more unique canopy layouts like multi tier, cultivar selection is huge. Um, you know, it's at the end of the day, it's what the consumer tastes, and it's what, the, you know, it's what they're buying, and it's what your day-to-day operations team is actually working with. And I think genetics, it's so interesting. So all these big players are like, I'm the biggest, right? And it was like this beat on the chest and look at all this, you know, canopy. And it's like, yeah, but it's it's boof. It's garbage. It's nothing. Like, yeah. yeah, nobody wants to smoke it. Yeah. And a lot of them didn't, you know, a lot of, we still see it where a lot of new licensees are so focused on getting the perfect system, the perfect location, the perfect license in the perfect state. And then they don't think about how to get the genetics in there that are going to really fit well with that. And so that that is another drum that I've really been trying to beat is make sure that not only have you do you have experience with the genetics you're going to run, but you know what they're going to do. You know if they're going to stretch two feet when they go into that multi-tier rack and flower, or are they going to stretch one foot? You know how much how much foliage are you going to have? How much are you going to need to defoliate? That kind of thing. And then also, are people going to buy? It? Do people want that cultivar? That's a that's a huge. You know, sometimes you find the one that grows perfectly. It's disease resistant. Nobody wants it. Totally. It, it's usually how it goes. And usually the one that everybody wants is so finicky, and you got to really baby it. But yeah. what's what's interesting is so we went from that like yeah, beat on our chest, like look how big we are, to oh shoot, quality matters. Like <laughs> once someone has herb that's even 20% better than your herb. It's hard to go back to and be like, wow, I didn't realize what, if you're new to cannabis, totally. you're like, I didn't realize what I was smoking is garbage. Totally. And I think we're going to see that, that kind of continue. You know, I'm, I, you know, I was just talking about how I really am pushing for the idea of, of shorter cycle times in veg and flower. But if you find a cultivar that takes 10 weeks, 11 weeks, but it's really special, 
you know, I think you should you should have the flexibility and, and the open mindedness to sell it if it's financially viable. You know, if your customers are willing to pay a huge premium or if it grows really well in your garden, if nobody else has it. You know, don't be afraid of, of chasing kind of more finicky cultivars if that's what the customer wants. Yeah, I definitely like the retail like dictated production versus grower. I, I've seen that not go well historically. It's how you end up with um, hundreds of thousands of pounds of chocolate OG on, on the mass market or something. I mean, yeah. you know, just like it checked a lot of boxes, but consumer demand wasn't as as high as you do. You have to kind of force it into the market. Totally. Well, and then on the flip side of that, sometimes you have marketing teams that are looking at what's selling today and they're saying, hey, we need 200 pounds of this. And then 12 months later, by the time it's all ready to sell, nobody wants it anymore. And the marketing team is saying, hey, you know, why do we have this? We asked for it 12 months ago. We need cookie, you know, some other type now. You know, there's a moving target there and trying to kind of predict trends while also working with what, what goes well in your garden. You got to get those cuts early as soon as it, you're like, I think that's going to be a hypey one, you know. It's totally. like, oh, it's got a Z in it and it's like a <laughs> household random object now. And I mean, the naming of cultivars has gotten so challenging. I feel bad for breeders these days. Like, totally. Every name I've ever thought of is taken. It's getting really creative out there, though. You know, now I see stuff and I'm like, that's pretty funny. Um, yeah, no, there are definitely some good names. Well, and, and, you know, people I think also sometimes when they're when they realize something isn't selling, they realize their shishkaberry isn't selling. They just rename it, um, sure. you know. And that's another that's another thing to kind of watch out for is really knowing what you're going to get. And it goes back to you know the, the way we started this topic was you mentioned you know when you're starting up a facility, you have to kind of decide what you're putting in there. The most successful groups that I've seen kind of long term that have been able to build a really good brand, they go through in a lot of cases a seed selection phase, which is absolute nightmare. And I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but if you really are looking at you know, long-term brand viability, long-term differentiation, maybe it's worth popping, you know, 10,000 seeds, realizing that you're not going to have very successful harvests for the first six months, year. Um, but then after that, you're going to have some really special differentiated stuff that you don't need to be, you know, chasing what's hot, chasing what the guys down the street are doing. You have something that, that's yours and that you can kind of brand on your own. Yeah. Relationships in the space are important. Um, Huge. I like to bring in I call them like proven cultivars. Yeah. Um, I used to call them proven winners, but then got a cease and desist letter from <laughs> proven winners, the horticultural company. I was like, okay, that's not, that's, you're a huge company. I'm sorry. But proven cultivars um, that, yeah, they perform well in multi tier. We already know what to expect from them. We already have rich um, imagery yeah. and uh, COAs. And so the sales and marketing team can actually plan. You yeah. know, when you're popping from seed or you just got a bunch of clones from the homie and you think you've got something the marketing team has no idea None. what they're getting and so you're trying to you know be excited about this first time to market but you're literally taking pictures of the winners like as they're ripening on the bud versus already having that stuff already you know pushing out that that messaging um, the interesting thing is you know as I said we, we saw those growers go so big in Canada and and in the states as well the last few years, there's been a lot more dialogue around quality and around genetics. And I always thought it was so crazy because I'm like, whether it was a smaller project, maybe five million or 10 million or 20, 30, 50, you know, we were on $650 million projects together yeah. and they spent like no money on genetics. None. And they balked at spending 10, 20 grand on it. I know. And then it was like, <laughs> hey, that's really expensive. And it's like, are you insane? You know, like you have like the Taj Mahal here yep. and you are growing disease undesirable weak genetics would you know that's i guess another benefit of doing it from seed to start out is is just even if you have something that you know exactly how it grows you know what it is if you don't know exactly where it's coming from it can 
cause a lot of issues in your facility. If it has, you know, viruses are becoming a huge topic of conversation, really hard to test for, especially down in the States. Um, if you don't know what's coming into your facility, even if it's the perfect cultivar, or you don't know where it's coming from or what it's coming in with, you, you can have major issues that impact your whole grow forever. I call know? it the Trojan horse. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, I've done it several times. Like when I got to California for the first time and yeah. had to grow, and I was just like, but I remember putting an email out to the team and they were I was like, if anyone's got any like really good, you know, cuts that you think would work well at the farm and you want to work out something like, you know, nobody said anything, but because it was um, Harborside Farms, they had the big retail and all the clones yeah. and they had crazy clone vendors, like in terms of diversity and volume, sure. I just took it all. And I knew that yeah. I was bringing it all in and I did bring it all in and yeah. we worked through those challenges. And but the sad thing is, is you bring in a hundred different things and like, you go fast forward a couple of years and you're like, man, I'm growing like four, six of the original hundred. Well, you know, and it's interesting, like where it's where it's all going to go in terms of cultivar selection, like grapes for for wine. There are only like 30 cultivars out there, which seems like a lot compared to, you know, a lot of other crops. But, you know, if, if there were only 30 cannabis cultivars right now, it would make things a lot easier. You know, they're like you said, hundreds and you end up growing the same handful based on what you're looking for, how your grows set up, what pathogens you're dealing with. I, I know a lot of greenhouse growers that have about three or four, but then they kind of cycle them based on year or time of year. So, you know, powdery mildew will get really bad with, with shishka berry in, in winter, <laughs> not to pick on shishka berry, but, uh, you know, they'll, they'll have some issues in certain seasons that are, you know, are totally not an issue in others. And they'll just kind of, you know, uh, arrange their, their cultivar selection and what they're growing based on seasonality. But everyone is kind of dwindling down to a handful because they realize what works and, and what doesn't, even if it does grow a really good product that people want if it doesn't work in your grow it's just not going to work yeah totally yeah it's like um you know my quotes uh let the genetics do the heavy lifting for you <laughs> i like that one i just i've watched people just struggle and it's like this isn't the one you totally. know like they'll, they'll try and change everything around the plant and 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 that ties me back to another comment that i have is when you're planning genetics for your facility you need to think about this actually at like in my opinion at the a and e team at the like in the very first mile of design because you kind of have a choice to make you're like am i going to design a facility that has the capabilities that i think are considered a best practice like optimal like yeah. from an environmental standpoint i'm going to be able to hold this optimal how much how much um, variability will i actually have is basically what you choose to restrict totally because you're going to say hey we're making these sausages I'm going to put all these ingredients into this sausage and these sausages are going to be consistent. Yep. And if the ingredients don't work for this sausage, well, those ingredients don't get to be in the sausage. And so um, you're basically building a machine and it's like, if the plants thrive in here, they'll be selected through a, you know, almost natural selection process. Yeah. And if they don't, they're going to be cold. The totally. other path is um, usually typical with um, a stronger budget, um, a more advanced cultivator and, and sometimes a lot of times like a science like science-based team yeah but they'll choose to have more variability within their cultivation facility for their genetics meaning if i need to um, adopt my environment to uh, something completely outside of typical parameters i have the capabilities of doing that but that comes with a premium cost totally you know well and you know it raises a good point about future proofing right we talked about how challenging it is to predict you know i, I feel like I, i've been in this industry for a while but if you go back three years and ask me what the industry looks like today you know three years from from when you asked i would have guessed totally wrong you know and and 
you know, I'm still immersed in the industry, but I, I promise you that if I was to guess and paint a picture of what the industry is going to look like in three more years, I'm, I'm also probably totally wrong. And uh, so I was like, you just discredited my, my next question. <laughs> my last question is a, a prediction for the future. Bench. Well, it's, it's tough. You know, this industry changes quick. And, and I, I think one of the challenges as a new operator that's building a facility is deciding how much do you really want to future proof your facility versus building it really purpose-built for what you're doing today. And I think, you know, there's a balance, and a lot of it depends on the market, how you see more licenses rolling out, how you see patient count, or, you know, whether it goes rec, you know, new new business popping up. It becomes really challenging because anytime you add future-proofing, you're either sacrificing for today, if today's production, or you're paying a premium, you know. And so we try to help customers you know, HVAC is a big one that we try to help customers future-proof, you know, lighting. A lot of times back in the day when CapEx budgets were really, really high, we would see groups go with way more lighting and HVAC than they needed with the idea that if, if they found a cultivar that worked really well with high intensity or, or different climate, they could swap it in there without any real, real issues. You know, we've seen now that customers are more focused on budget, we've seen that strategy change. Sometimes groups will do one high intensity room so that if they find a, a cultivar that works really well with 1200 ppfd or if they find a genetic that works really well on a 12-week cycle they have the flexibility to mm-hmm. put it in this one room mm-hmm. but it's not you know it, it, they can't run it in their whole facility because it's not worth the cost just to have that option open yeah that's interesting so for people that want to learn more about urban grow where can they find you all over all the internet of things and <laughs> and socials of sorts yeah yeah so you know urban grow uh, you know our website has a bunch of info on all our different services um urbangrow.com yeah urbangrow.com easy enough yeah easy easy enough to spell, follow is it all spelled normal g-r-o not, uh, not no w there we go but uh yeah pretty pretty similar so yeah you know and then uh you know a lot of people are familiar with our kind of you know the divisions that are all internal now but that we acquired over the last couple of years so emerald construction uh dvo uh, an hvac group out of houston that we're really excited about um, that we acquired pretty recently. Um, and then 2WR, MJ12 is our architecture team that was one of the first acquisitions we made. So, yeah, all all on the Urban Growth site, but, uh, you know, folks may be familiar with those kind of brand names also. Yeah, Urban Growth, Turnkey Solutions. Mitch, I could talk to you forever. Um, I'm grateful to have been a friend and, and watch you grow personally uh, um, over the years. And so I've, I've learned a lot from you and had a lot of fun on the road learning this crazy industry and, and navigating and uh, watching you know, kind of like being a part of cannabis history to some extent. It's, it's been it's been exciting and it's been a pleasure. And oh, likewise, man. No, I appreciate that. I know this isn't the last conversation, so I look forward to uh, the next one. Likewise, I appreciate all, all that you've done. You've been a tremendous help. I've learned you know more from you than maybe even Jerry. So I uh, <laughs> in my last year of school. So no, I, I really really appreciate it, and yeah. it's been a, been a blast being cool. on. All right, brother. Thanks so much. Yeah, man. I guess he's kind of on the way. Yeah, that's a wrap. Thanks for listening to Cultivation Elevated. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned, are available at pithorticulture.com forward slash podcast. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash cultivation elevated. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.